0: Hi folks, welcome to episode 109 of the Epochs of the Lotus Eaters. I'm joined by Bo, and today we're going to be discussing Ele- Eleanor of Aquitaine, very influential 12th century lady. Mm. I didn't think such things existed. No, we keep making this comment every time we talk about a woman in history, we've got to stop making it. <laughs> um, but no, she's tremendously uh, famous and powerful in her own lifetime.
1: Yeah, a standout figure, Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, she was the king of France, uh, sorry, queen of France, and then the queen of England, <laughs> yeah. the mother of two kings of England, yeah. um, and the heiress to the fabulously rich and huge duchy of Aquitaine, sometimes mm. pronounced Aquitaine. I'm going to pronounce it Aquitaine. By the French is pronounced. Um, it, but yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, fantastically influential and also a very long life. Mm. She lived to be in her early 80s, what, 82, 83 years old. And it's from the amazing. age of about 15, she was on the stage of history. So for yeah. 65 plus years.
0: She's like their version of Queen Elizabeth the Second.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or a Victoria figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but much more than either of those queens, because yeah. neither of those queens really wielded actual power, mm. or she did at various points. And her life was just unbelievably action-packed.
0: Mm.
1: She went on, cru- on the Second Crusade.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, did, what? Did she actually? Oh, I didn't. Realize that. She was in prison for about 15, 16 years. Oh, Jesus Christ. And got out and went on to be a regent in all but name of England afterwards. Oh, just a crazy up and down roller coaster life. Unbelievably full of events.
0: Okay. I, I mean, I, I knew a bit
1: about her, but I didn't know that. Um, so, there are, in fact, just to say, yeah, st- yeah. on just uh, straight away here, uh, that her life is so action-packed that it's going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour. There's loads more. We could do a mini-series on her, to be quite oh, okay. honest. Because her life touches on the lives of everyone important. Mm. Um, you know, from the emperor of Byzantium, Byzantian um, Eastern
0: well, Roman emperor.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, so <clears throat> loads of her children went on to be really important, not just the Kings of England, but other ones. Yeah. She had like 10 kids.
0: Blimey.
1: Or 10, 11 kids, not all yeah. about seven or eight of them survived anyway. So it goes on and on. Um, <clears throat> again, just to say straight off the bat, um, some of the, uh, the historiography side of things, some of the, uh, chroniclers, uh, John of Salisbury. William of Tyre is a bit later, but still a great source. Uh, Roger of Wendover, got a couple of quotes from old Roger of Wendover later. Um, So yeah, another thing I want to say straight away before we get into the details of it, is uh, I've said it before about other people in history, like Mm. Augustus and the Duke of Wellington. When you're introduced to them, perhaps as a child, uh, Mm. a fictionalized version of them, it sort of colors or clouds your view of them until you, if in in adulthood you read real histories. Mm. Well, I had that with Eleanor of Aquitaine and I think a lot of people will have done with the film, the 1968 classic, The Lion in Winter, where she's played by Catherine Hepburn. Oh, really? Um, not to be confused with Audrey Hepburn. No. Audrey Hepburn and Catherine Hepburn, two very different women. Uh, but Catherine Hepburn, um, an amazing actress <coughs> in that film, <coughs> pardon me, plays Eleanor of Aquitaine in her old age, or not old old age, but in her sort of 60s, 70s, she would have been, um, and so it's a really interesting, great portrayal. Mm. But again, the real historical figure um, is a bit different. It's pretty close though. I think it's pretty good. I mm-hmm. love the lining wind. So everyone out there should see that film. Okay. okay. So if it, most people know of her, it's probably that depiction mm. by Catherine Hepburn in that film. Um, so should we just start? Yeah. So she was born in the 1120s. So all of this takes place in the 12th century, the very last few years of her life. She dies in like... 1204. Mm. So this is all sort of t- firmly 12th century stuff. Now that's quite early, isn't it? Yeah. That's really quite early on in the middle ages.
0: Yeah. Um, Europe is just chaos at this point.
1: There is a King of France, mm-hmm. but Fran- there's no it's, France as we know it. Yeah. It's not France as we know it the, in any the, way, shape or form. There's a
0: King of France, which is a an enlarged area around Paris. Mm. And then the oaths sworn by the Duchy of Burgundy, um, And various other, Brittany, Normandy, you know, all these areas around. And the uh, Languedoc isn't a part of France at this point, is it? Mm. So this is a separate cultural entity all of its own. Um, And so France is uh, kind of a, it's a reduced uh, area to what we would picture France to be now. And the French language would have been far, far more parochial um, at that time. So there is a King of France, but
1: um <clears throat> yeah, places like Anjou and Normandy and Brittany mm. and Gascony yeah. and the Loire Valley and all sorts of and Burgundy are all and more, many more, are all independent really. A lot of them some of them owe fealty to the King of France. But so just to say that the Aquitaine is a massive chunk, most mm. really, of southern France and big chunks of Southwest Central France. Yeah. France. Yeah. Um, so from the Loire Valley all the way down to the Pyrenees, not including Gascony. I'll put maps up so people who aren't familiar will actually see what I mean. Yeah, It's it's bigger, richer, and more powerful than France itself.
0: Well, that that's the thing. Um, I've never been there, but I've read a lot about uh, the area. And apparently it's very lush. It's very, very rich. Very uh, good for farming. You know, loads of rivers, which is where the name Aquitaine, Aqua, comes from. Uh, apparently it's a lovely area of the world. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> like I said, I've never been there, but that's what I've read.
1: Yeah, I've been through there a few times. Yeah, and yeah. it's very, very nice. Um, and the Southern French, even to this day, mm. uh, or in, in most countries, um, if it's a, there, there might well be cultural regional differences oh, yeah. between the extreme east and west coasts of your country or the extreme north and south coasts mm. of your country. Now, it's the same in France. The people of the south, they consider themselves fairly different to the people of the central or northern France. Mm. Anyway, back then it was very much the case. Very, very much the case. Yeah. Southern, the Southern French, um, sort of yeah, had different. I don't even know if
0: I don't even know if they'd have called themselves French at this well, point. No, they, no, they wouldn't. No. That's the thing. You no. know, they, it, like they, they. It was. It's much more sort of Italian influenced culture, uh, much more like Latinate culture. Whereas the northern area was, I guess, more Germanic because that's where the um, the Franks, where the name comes from, uh, had their capital, wasn't it? A few
1: centuries before this, there's the Frankish kingdom of Charlemagne, which mm. gets, uh, upon his death, gets cut up and divided between his sons. There's a Renc- Rex Francorum, mm. the King of the Franks, various, there's like the East and the West Frank, Frankish kingdoms. And um, anyway, it's, it's about this time in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries when the kingdom of France, the crown of France really starts to come into its own. Mm. Here still it's, yeah, it's not huge.
0: It's up for debate whether the crown of France is the most powerful entity in the region. That's the issue, oh, definitely. you know. And yeah. obviously, for the next few hundred years, of course, it does become the preeminent power in the region. But like, it's not guaranteed at this point.
1: So to say, Eleanor, the, the Aquitaine is extremely powerful in its own right. Now, mm. Eleanor of Aquitaine's grandfather had been very, very important. Mm. Sometimes, in fact, this happens to. Eleanor herself. Sometimes people are so powerful and important in their age, in their lifetime, during their lifetimes, that they sort of set the tone for mm. all of culture.
0: Oh, Queen Victoria right. is a great example. Yeah, right. Yeah.
1: So Eleanor of Aquitaine's grandfather had been one of those, mm. and he was—I I think libertine—is a bit strong, but he wasn't—he wasn't very straight-laced. Right. He would be. He was. Um, he wasn't too formal. Um, he. Uh, practice like he would, he would, had a sense of humor and was baldy, you know, uh, was right. like rude a bit and liked, um, liked troubadours and singing yeah. and jesters yeah. and joking around, practical jokes, all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and so the people from the Aquitaine and, and, and southern France sort of took that on board. And that was certainly the, the milieu in which Eleanor was raised.
0: Well, they, they, there's a lot to be said for the sort of troubadour culture of uh, Ang- Aquitaine and Languedoc at this time, because it like I've read a bunch of books about it, and they speak of it much more highly than they speak of the northern areas of France, which come across as being a lot more northwestern European. Uh, it's a lot more dour, mm. a lot more serious, uh, a lot more um, high-minded in ways, actually. With the the sort of the romances that they tell each other about knightly and chivalrous virtues, right? Whereas, like you say, in Languedoc and Aquitaine, there's this culture of um, well, courtly troubadours that are entertaining. Like it's a, it feels it feels very um, relaxed. And honestly, when you look back on it, maybe it was inevitable that the sort of more militaristic north was going to conquer it, mm. uh, with the kind of attitude that the culture seems to have displayed. But it's very charming is I think the point I'm trying to make here. And it it's hard not to have an affection for this kind of culture. Like it's sweet, you know, Ooh. It's because it's, it, like this is in the, the period of time after the Moorish invasions that have been fought off a couple of hundred years before and no longer occur. So it's like, okay, you know, there's this breathing space for a relaxed culture to exist, which is nice. And it's very artistic, you know, very artistic culture. But anyway, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think dour was a good word for the more northern yeah. states and places that be- became Belgium and Holland and mm. Britain and Germany. A L- lot more dour, a yeah. lot more serious. Um, also another thing to say that in around this time, actually in a couple of centuries later, Burgundy became sort of the gold standard mm. of sort of courtly etiquette and things. Yeah. But in this age, during Eleanor of Aquitaine's life and everything, um, Aquitaine was considered, um, yeah, the gold standard for sort of chivalry mm. and courtly love. There's this idea mm. of courtly love of, and, and troubadours and, uh, how you treat women. Now, what goes along with that bit more relaxed, less dour mm. view of the world or culture is that women were given a bit more free reign. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have to be completely subservient and, um, and, and completely silent really, um, Well, in fact, Eleanor of Aquitaine, her father died when she was still fairly young, what was she like, 14 or so. Um, and she'd had a younger brother, but he'd also died of natural causes when he was really young, like four or five years old or something. Mm. And so she inherited, she became the full heiress of the Aquitaine. And again, just to stress it, the most important piece of land in France and in Western Europe. Um, this girl of, of 14 or 15 now, as you can imagine, she, her hand then in marriage is the most valued one. Yeah. So where she, she'd gone from her sort of her personal stock obviously went through the roof when her Mm. father and, and baby brother had died.
0: I imagine all of the princes of Europe were trying to marry her.
1: Now suddenly, instead of being married off to some duke somewhere, mm. some count somewhere, she's going to be destined for royalty now. Mm. And in fact, she marries the most eligible man in France, the the, the King of France. Um, Good move for him, Louis the Seventh.
0: Mm.
1: Now, this Louis the Seventh was a bit weak. That's sort of what history remembers him as a little right. bit, a little bit weak. Or well, he was very pious. He wasn't a martial king mm. like. Richard the Lionheart or anything, um, Eleanor's son. <laughs> yeah, um, but we'll get on to all of that. So, well, I've got a quote here from Churchill. It says of Louis the Seventh, Louis the Seventh was a French Edward the Confessor. Hmm. He practised with faithful simplicity the law of Christ. All his days were spent in devotion, and his nights in vigil or penance. Uh, when he left his own chapel, he would delay the whole court by waiting till the humblest person present had preceded him. These pious and exemplary habits did not endear him to his queen. <laughs> Eleanor of Aquitaine was, was in her own right, a reigning princess with the warmth of the South in her veins. That's a pleasant way of putting. She was, she did what she wanted.
0: Yeah. But also I, I find this, this did not endear him to his queen because you've got, I mean, like exaggerating it into modern parlance, saying like she's a party girl or something <laughs> is way too much. right? Mm, mm. It's, it's way too much. And, but the, the liveliness of the south compared to, as you can see, the dourness of the north, where they take their religion very, very seriously, uh, is very evident at this point. And it, what's interesting is like, it's, it's the, the north of France that ends up crusading against Languedoc uh, during the Cathar heresy, only, what, I mean, probably less than 100 years after this particular moment that you're talking about here. Um, so it's not even long before this sort of thing Happens, and so you can see there's this massive like ley line, uh, like this, this gulf between the cultures that like goes. up You can map it on, you know, the the landscape practically. Mm. It's just very oh. interesting to me. There's
1: mm. well, something to say about Eleanor's character um put very politely there by Churchill: the warmth of the South in her veins. That's very rich, um,
0: very rich way of putting it.
1: And if you've ever seen the lion in winter, you'll get an idea of. Um, She's got her own mind. Yeah. There's a couple of ways to take this. One is that it's inspiring that she's a strong woman. And two, she's a complete liability pain in the ass. And the to reality honest- is, she's probably a bit of both.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, well, it's probably both, um, right? Because I do admire the fact that she's got a mind of her own. Mm. But from Louis's position, probably is a nightmare. Mm. Would have been nice to have had a, a, a properly orthodox Catholic princess who knew what she was supposed to do in order to uphold the way of life he's trying to make an example of.
1: And it is quite rare in this time. So yeah, the idea that Mary Beard said that women have never had political voices, there's no better example to show that being incorrect than Eleanor of Aquitaine.
0: (coughs) What was um, Edward the Confessor's? There was... Emma of Normandy? That was it, Emma of Normandy. Yeah. Yeah. She was another great example. Matilda, Richard's wife. Um, William's wife um, you know we've covered a bunch of these women because they keep popping up because they are important
1: there's a Margaret of Anjou during the Wars of the Roses mm. incredibly headstrong mm. and utterly powerful in her own right completely
0: mm. wasn't Harold Godwinson's wife incredibly important as well Edith the Swan nicked.
1: yeah yeah she, she had
0: right yeah, that's yeah it. but anyway there's anyway, examples yeah. going back to, we, we keep hammering to ancient point, Sumer yeah. there's yeah, examples yeah, going there back there are, to Sumer
1: yeah. um, so Emma of Aquitaine though she sort of she knew that she was a political power in her yeah. own right from the early stage. So she marries uh, Louis Seventh when she's 15. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, the accounts of the accounts seem to agree that from day one, she sort of bossed the situation.
0: Was she a good looking woman?
1: Uh, yeah, apparently. Yeah. In her youth, extremely beautiful. Yeah. Right, okay.
0: How old was Louis Seventh at this point?
1: He was a bit older, not much older. I think he was like 17 or 18 or right, something. Right, so he's
0: an inexperienced young man.
1: And pious, and and, yeah,
0: very, very um, church-like. And uh, suddenly, you've got this uh, very—should we call this a—gregarious, beautiful young woman who comes from a different culture that has different expectations. I can see how that would be the case. Mm. Mm. Maybe if he was like in his mid to late twenties or something, the situation would be different. But
1: yeah, she—it seems like she was one of those people that um, sort of did within reason, did and said whatever she wanted. And hang the consequences, you know, mm. um, it doesn't really care for what other people think because she's the top of the pile yeah. and, and doesn't need to prove anything to anyone. She's going to do what she wants to do.
0: She knows the game though, that, right? Cause she's been brought up in it and she knows her place in the hierarchy. And so once you're secure in that.
1: At the very top, once she's the anointed queen of France. Yeah. Yeah. There's no one yeah. to tell her no, really.
0: Most of the time. Yeah, especially if uh, her wife, she's got her husband a husband, but browbees. Mm, mm.
1: Yeah. Um, also, but apparently their, their marriage wasn't um, particularly happy. They were married for Can sort Can you of imagine? About 50, 14, 15 years yeah. they were married. And uh, she just didn't like the fact that he was weak. Oh yeah. Um, it, do you know what springs to mind? There's a funny clip, well, not funny, haha, but it's an interesting clip of uh, Jackie Kennedy being asked- in an interview once, mm. like, what do you think about policy, about government, about the Cold War, whatever? And she just says, "Don't ask me. It's up to it's up to John what the policy is." I'm just. She literally says, "Like, I'm just a woman. It's not my place to even have an opinion."
0: Well, Eleanor definitely
1: doesn't agree with that. Right. So she was co- the complete opposite. She was right. like, "Well, if he's not going to take the reins of, of yeah. power of government, yeah. I will. I'm happy yeah. to do that, whatever." <laughs> and so she was. It seems like she was basically sort of disgusted by his weakness, though. Um,
0: a lot of women are. Take that note. <coughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, one of the reasons that Jackie Kennedy was probably like, don't ask me, I'm a woman, is because at least John Kennedy, you can't call him weak, you know? Right. Yeah. He at least had, you know, a very strong, positive political platform. You know, he was doing things, you know, he wasn't. You know, anyway.
1: The reason why I mentioned uh, Jackie O, later Jackie Onassis, why I mentioned Jackie Kennedy was because that persisted into the 20th, 20th century. Mm. It's only very, very recently mm. where it's completely taboo for women to be like that. Mm. Mm. So in the mid um, 12th century, it was very, very rare, extremely yeah. rare still. It's not that it never happened, but it was rare.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and they, uh, just to cut ahead briefly, they did have two children, but both daughters and not for years did she conceive. But she basically was disgusted with him; didn't want to sleep with him. He he wasn't he that. Probably, in, yeah. He didn't want to really, really sleep with her. Yeah, he he was um, probably
0: too too busy in prayer.
1: He was also a bit disgusted with her that really? she was oh, too yeah. gregarious for him, yeah, yeah, yeah. too yeah. outgoing. Yeah, um, yeah. Terrible match. Yeah. So one of the first big events yeah. um, that happens in 1147, when she's about 24, 25 years old, is the Second Crusade is called. <laughs> And Louis decides he wants to go on it because crusades, particularly the first and second crusade, were something like an armed pilgrimage. Yes. It's very, very religious. It wasn't just just purely war for its own sake. No. There's a, v- a very highly religious element to it that you're, that you're saving the church of the Holy Sepulchre from the Turk. You're
0: saving Christendom. Right. You know, this yeah. is the, it was in defense of the faith entirely, you know. I mean, we, we don't use the term Christendom anymore, but the Muslims do use the term Ummah, and they basically mean the same thing. Uh, the entire Muslim world and the entire Christian world. And yeah, like this is one of the modern canards about the Crusades I really despise. Oh, it was just about wealth. It was just about power. No, no, no. It was, I mean, it was about those things. For some, it was. But but it was about those things. But also everyone, literally everyone at this point, was a raging religious zealot by our standards. So like there's no separating worldly affairs from spiritual affairs, like they didn't even conceive of such a thing. Like as far as they were concerned, there was no separation between church and state, especially not in the 12th century. You know, maybe in the 18th century when they actually start thinking like that, but certainly not now. The world is ordered by God. The divine procession of the universe all came to a head in the king and his wife and his t- children and all of this stuff. All of it was imbued with religiosity. There's no separating. So it's the the, the Crusades were a thoroughly religious affair.
1: It's funny you should say that about the separation of church and state. I mean, that's, that starts starts to play out a bit with um, Thomas Becket and Henry mm. II in a, like a few years after this. Yeah. Yes, until then,
0: but even then, uh, that's. For,
1: but for the normal people, there'll be some landed people from Europe that go there just for power and wealth for and sure. war. But for a lot of people that took the cross, mm. it's about so. rescuing Jerusalem from the. It's been diseased by Islam.
0: Yeah <laughs> by by the by the the pagan barbarian as far as they're concerned the seljuk turk has infested jerusalem and we need to we need to cleanse it that's exactly how they would have framed it and so again to to take i hate taking the cynical tack on this because like no no no, they genuinely believe just because you don't genuinely believe doesn't mean they don't genuinely they really believe this you know they thought they were saving the the cosmos from from disorder Okay? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they were crazy, don't get me wrong. I'm sure we can all agree, but like, that's what their belief was. And I'm not going to question it.
1: So real quick to set this up before I do a quote, um, Eleanor had an uncle, a Raymond, mm-hmm. a Prince of Antioch, mm-hmm. who reigned in Antioch, yep. her close relation, who she'd known when she was a child. And um, one of the aims, the main aim, as far as Louis VII was concerned, was mm-hmm. to get to Jerusalem.
0: Because yeah, this is about but 50 years after what, uh, the first crusade, right? Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The first crusade was they got to Jerusalem 1099, they got, 10, yeah. and so we're now talking 1147, yeah, and they go out there in 1148. So, yeah,
0: because the crusader so states are on. set up by the first crusade, but of course, are suffering uh, from uh, repeated attacks from Muslim forces. The
1: Seljuk Turk didn't disappear after 1099, no. No. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Fatimid also from, uh, mm. from Egypt, yeah. So it's the the uh, Crusader states are sort of constantly mm. assailed yeah. by the Muslim world still. Um,
0: I'm not okay. judging the Muslim world for that. You know, I would have done the same had I been them. Mm. So she's got this
1: Uncle Raymond out in Antioch and they're going to pass through that way. Mm. You go past Antioch. Um, so if I read a couple of quotes here, mm. uh, or I've got a fairly long quote here from um, a book by Antonia Fraser. She wrote, Eleanor of Aquitaine... Uh, was the great feudal heiress whose marriage to Louis VII of France in 1137, shortly after the death of her father, Brought him Louis the Seventh vast possessions. At the time of her marriage, Eleanor was only fifteen, and the complicated future which awaited her, gifted as she was with beauty, riches, and the intelligence to make sure of her gifts, uh, to make use of her gifts, could hardly have been foreseen. Eleanor, therefore, was still a comparatively young woman on that Easter day, eleven forty-six, when she knelt before the celebrated orator, the Abbot Bernard of Clairvaux at Vasselay, and moved by his eloquence, offered him her thousands of. Vassals for what was to become the Second Crusade. She was atten- attended by numerous ladies of quality as she knelt, uh, as she knelt, bearers of such heraldic names as Sibylle, Countess of Flanders, Memieu of Rouchy, Florine of Burgoyne, Torquerie of Bouillon, and uh, Fadide of Toulouse. It was the one thing. It was one thing for a great lady to pledge her vassals, but quite another for her to go on crusade herself. This, however, was what Queen Eleanor proceeded to do, and opinions have varied concerning the reason. Did chivalry demand the presence of a woman at the centre of this pious procession. More humanly, did King Louis himself fear for the consequences of leaving his fascinating young wife at home? Whatever the reason, the chronicler who related the episode considered that the Queen's departure, surrounded by her ladies, set an extremely bad example for the female sex as a whole. Furthermore, the papal bull, which promulgated the crusade and which was read aloud at Vassilais, expressly forbade the attendance of concubines on the expedition. It was at this moment according to legend, that Queen Eleanor suddenly appeared among the crowds at Vasselay, taking the cross, riding a white horse and herself dressed in the guise of an Amazon with gilded buskins, type, boots, really, buskins, uh, with gilded buskins on her feet and plumes in her hair. Surrounded by her ladies, similarly, if less gorgeously attired, the queen galloped through the crowds, urging on the faithful to join the crusade in a deliberate imitation of Penthesilea, who's uh, an Amazon queen appears in the Iliad. Achilles kills her, actually. So an Amazon warrior queen yeah. uh, and her soldier women. Uh, her squadron of ladies also distributed white distaffs to the faint-hearted, an early form of the First World War's white feather. According to Nicotas, who's a, actually a um, Byzantian historian, chronicler, Um, According to Nicotas, the queen kept up her enjoyable classical charade along the route to the Holy Land. So LARPing all the way, it seems to me. The Greek historian wrote of the women dressed as men, mounted on horses and armed with lance and battle axe, and they kept a martial mane bold as Amazons. And he mentioned that at the head, quote, one particular, presumably Eleanor, richly dressed, went by the name of the Lady of the Golden Boot, The elegance of her bearing and the freedom of her movements recalling the celebrated leader of the Amazons. In a bold gesture, this is um, the Fraser goes on, Antonia Fraser goes on. In a bold gesture, Queen Eleanor had thus separated herself from the category of mortal women, mere concubines, albeit royal, and other female companions. By her plumes and her bold buskins, she had appealed ostentatiously to the past and declared in so doing her right to accompany the crusade, it should perhaps be noted in conclusion uh, that the bull for the next crusade, the third crusade, 1189, expressly forbade women of all sorts to join the expedition by general agreement of all the Christian monarchs, including King Louis. But by this time, Queen Eleanor had been married to King Henry II of England for nearly 40 years.
0: It's very interesting because I feel that this wasn't Louis' choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like the the question. Oh, did, maybe Louis didn't want to leave her home. I mean, he probably wouldn't have wanted to leave her, home, but I don't think that this was his decision. She seems to have um, taken that southern energy and uh, realised, oh, I can make a big, sh- I can make a big show of this. You know, this because uh, again, like she comes from that kind of expressive culture. Um, I mean, one might say she's not taking it seriously.
1: I get the impression that Louis. She was a total embarrassment to him. Yes, what an embarrassment!
0: I can because another thing as well, like not just the religiosity of crusading, right? There, there's because there's there's a chivalrous exuberance in uh, knightly garb and knightly behaviour, right? But one of the one of the interesting things about the crusade is that it's a deliberate uh, act of remittance of sins. Yeah, right. And so there was there was always with the Crusades an undertone of seriousness because actually a lot of people going would have been criminals who are trying to save their immortal souls, um, and you you see this in the first Crusade as well. And there's also the like extreme religiosity of it with this sort of peasants' Crusade at the beginning with um, with the hermit Peter the Hermit, Peter the hermit. It yeah, um, where it's it's not this larp. But it's yeah. it's actually very grim, and no, we're very serious, you know. And so she is, as you say, she kind of embarrassing that she's kind of missing the point with her southern uh, exuberance.
1: Her Lopping, yeah. You said undertones. I'd say explicit overtones. It's deadly serious.
0: Sure, um,
1: you're f- but- you're fighting
0: for the
1: most sacred thing in the world, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and your immortal soul.
0: And it's a deadly very dangerous serious. thing to do. Right? Yeah. But yeah. the the thing is. Conversely, a lot of the um Norman and Frankish knights on the First Crusade, I've I've read various accounts of it, and there are points that they are being very frivolous themselves, mm. right? When they when they take Antioch, for example, and things like this, you know they they you know they and when when they are disrespectful to the the Emperor of the uh Greeks, the the em- the Holy Roman mm. Emperor, mm. and sit on his throne and stuff like this, like so Tancred, yeah, it's not that there's no frivolity, uh, and so like I said. I, I didn't want to make it but it is a very serious endeavor overall, right It's not there aren't people who aren't jackasses because there are, uh, but she's really taking the crown on that one
1: there. she's laughing, it seems yeah. to me, dressing yeah. up as an Amazon, yeah um, I can only imagine that well, not only imagine the accounts say that the normal French people because she brought with her on Crusade loads yeah. of her own vassals and yeah. knights, yeah. Yeah. and they were all of the same mind as her, yeah but all the others were in, embarrassed by it, really. There's one one or two accounts where she would ride through the the Anatolian countryside bare-breasted. Um,
0: I imagine that went down brilliantly. With Louis,
1: the very, very pious Louis VII. Yeah. Didn't, yeah.
0: And I can only imagine what the Muslims were saying back in their camps. Right. There's a bare-breasted French woman. The Queen. On, on crusade. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you serious? To watch the full video, please become a Premium Member at LotusEaters.com